0: of Matthew. I'll be reading a little bit from chapter 10 and a little bit from chapter 12. Uh, Last week Pastor Peter not the Pastor Peter we prayed for but Pastor Peter cranenberg encouraged you whether you're here or watching at home to actually have a Bible in your hand. And I just want to reiterate that. I think it's a handy practice, um, particularly again, because I'm going to read a few verses at the end of a chapter. And while I'm talking, you may want to slip back and look at where did this come from? What is he not talking about in this chapter? And see some of the context that's always helpful. We try to point some of it out, but your ability to look at that yourself, of course, is a gift and a freedom you have. And I encourage you to use that whenever you can. So first from Matthew chapter 10, I'll read from um, verse 34 through 39. Jesus says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be the members of your own household. Anyone who loves her father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And then from the end of chapter 12 of Matthew, a couple pages further, I will read beginning at verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I'm gonna move that forward. By the way, if you ever need to do public presentations, one great way to get comfortable is just start moving the furniture around on stage. It kind of gets you over the nerves part and gets you ready. Your beautiful, messy family. And I just got to thank uh, Leah for showing off her beautiful, messy family in the children's sign. That was brilliant. Um, so we've entered a series that we're calling Beautiful Messy Relationships. That's the, that's the kind of big picture. And the first two sermons, first two uh, sermons of this year were about residual relationships, 1.0 and 2.0 by myself and Pastor Peter. I think that's actually wonderful when you have two different preachers doing a a similar topic and theme because you get to see how broad and how differently you can, can do that. And so uh, thanks, Peter, for adding 2.0 to my 1.0. And then today we're gonna talk about your beautiful, messy family. And and I trust you're noticing that, that we have two things going on there and it'll probably be in all of these relationship series messages, is there's the beautiful and the messy. There's the good and the bad. There's the easy and the difficult, right? I think the reason we're doing this series is quite simply because relationships are difficult right? Um, we have a passion and a, a built into us desire. It's not good for us to be alone, the, the creation story tells us. We have a natural desire to be with other people, but being with other people is also difficult. I'm sure I've used my, one of my favorite lines that I learned way back in seminary already. Ministry is easy until the people get involved, right? Relationships are easy until there's other people we have to hang around with. Driving on the road is easy until there's traffic, other people, all those kinds of wonderful things we need to deal with. And so as we said, as I said, certainly in the first sermon um, in this series, our relationship with Jesus is meant to reshape all of our other relationships. And so we start with that that core and foundational relationship we have with Jesus, that which makes us Christians or Christ followers or or disciples, and we wanna recognize, and we're gonna do that today in terms of our families, how does our relationship with Jesus then change the way we relate and think about and function in the family context? Again, the assumption always is that who we are in Christ shapes how we function in every relationship and every aspect of our lives. So, what does this mean? Do not suppose, says Jesus, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Think about that for a second. I'm not leaving. So, Christmas wasn't that far ago, and then we sang the angel's song, Peace on Earth and Goodwill to Men, when Jesus was born. Later in the New Testament, it says, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, ranks number three, if they're in order. And here Jesus says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. Don't be ridiculous. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. This is where that context thing comes in. You need to read this whole chapter to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And um, I'm going to explain it to you, and I want to give this warning. Um, It's always dangerous to... Explain a passage because sometimes then you're explaining it away. I don't want to take the edge off of what Jesus is saying here. He did say this. This is a quote. right? So Jesus did say, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And I do want to explain it so you understand it because I don't want you to think that it's time to go out there and wreak havoc and get out your swords. But I don't want to take the edge away. You get get the, the tension I'm sitting in there, right? So... Um, In this passage, Jesus actually, chapter 10, is really Jesus saying, disciples, I'm going to send you on a tryout, on a mission. You're going to go out to only the people of Israel, and you're going to preach to them this good news. The kingdom of heaven is near, right? And then as Jesus prepares them, he says, there's a good chance you're going to get in trouble. Now think about that. They're gonna go out and say the kingdom of heaven is near and the kingdom of heaven is what the people of Israel have been waiting for all along. And as they say it, they're gonna get in trouble. They're gonna be brought before the magistrate it says and don't worry about what you're gonna say, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And there's gonna be tension around this. And so the sword or the disharmony, the non-peace that Jesus is bringing is actually the response to the message the kingdom of heaven is near. And so we need to understand that when Jesus says, I'm not coming to bring peace, but the sword, he's not saying, go grab your sword and start a war. He's saying, as you proclaim a message of peace, hear that clearly, it's actually going to bring disharmony. In the uh, Sermon on the Mount, in the um, Beatitudes, Jesus says eight Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And right after he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, he goes on to say, and blessed are you when you're persecuted. And I was taught to understand recently that what's going on there is Jesus said the persecuted thing twice in a row. The first time he's saying it about... The people around you that are persecuted, they're going to be blessed because they're going to receive the kingdom. They who understand the challenges of this world are going to receive that. And then he says, and blessed are you. Now he's talking to his disciples. You're also blessed when you're persecuted because if you proclaim the kind of kingdom where the meek and the merciful and the mourning are the people who are are receiving that kingdom, you are going to be persecuted. You're going to feel the after effects of this. So let me shorten that up to this. If you proclaim the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., of the kingdom of heaven, that's gonna actually get you a backlash. If you are a deep person of peace in this world, that's actually what's going to bring this messy time for you. It carries on. With a quote from Micah, chapter seven. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and he he carries that on. Um, Notice, by the way, pay attention to what you do when you read quotes from the Old Testament in the Gospels. I think what we've actually been trained to do is say, I'm gonna read that quickly because then Jesus is gonna explain it and then at least I'll know what he's really talking about. Right? But what you really need to notice is that when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he's doing exactly what a rabbi in Israel would do on a very regular basis. They didn't have this handy dandy book. They had it in here. One of the greatest honors you could have as a a Jewish boy was to be invited by a rabbi, someone like Jesus, to come follow him. And when you're following him, one of the tasks you'd have as a Jewish boy would be to memorize scripture, right? And if you lasted long enough, if you became an advanced level disciple, so to speak, right, you would have the whole Torah, the whole Old Testament law memorized, you'd have it internalized, right? And you'd have the prophets internalized. And so Jesus was one of those boys who went through some rabbinic school. And so as he's talking, he's forever just quoting scripture and he does it pretty darn accurately because he's internalized it, right? He owns this stuff on the inside. So just a little hint there, by the way, total aside to this message, if you want to be like Jesus, one of the things you might want to do is internalize some scripture because that's exactly how he functioned. And if you want the short version of that, carry one of these around because it has all the stuff in there as well. So as he quotes this, he's quoting Micah 7. And I know there's a whole pile of girls and women here. um, And I'm picking on you because you've been gems and Calvinettes. And you know what Micah 6 verse 8 says, right? And you're going to yell it out to me right now. Not that one, but that's cool. Go that one. to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And when, and the reason you pick Micah 6 verse 8 for the gems or Calvinet's theme verse, and not Micah 7 and following, is because that's the moment at which God says, this is, this is what it's supposed to look like. But you know what he's saying in the whole letter of Micah? He's saying, you're not actually seeking justice. You're not actually walking humbly before me. And when you're doing that, what's gonna happen is you're going to have this enmity, this battle, this strife in your family. You're going to have man against his father, daughter against his You're going to have family tension, right? And so, again, Jesus is quoting something that isn't God's prescription for life is that you fight with your parents and you fight with your children. He's saying what happens is if you don't seek justice for everyone, if you don't live out my kingdom as fully as possible, right, you can't even trust the people in your own household, and you're going to have to watch out right and the flip side of that then is when we lean in as hard as we can to doing truth and justice and humility things all around us oddly enough we're going to get in trouble the world doesn't like it when things get too healthy and peaceful and that sounds strange to say but it's true when when you live in a healthy way What you're really doing is you're undermining somebody else's dysfunction and you're pointing it out. All right, we're gonna be a little more specific about that a little later in the sermon, but hang on to that thought and we will lean into it um, as we move forward. So that's Micah 7, right after, of course, Micah 6, verse 8. And then relative relationships. All of our relationships are relative to our relationship with Jesus. So our relationship with our relatives is relative to our relationship with Jesus. Got it? Anyone, this is how Jesus says it, he's maybe more clear than I am, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. All right, so Jesus is ranking it here. He's not saying don't love your father and mother. He says make sure that I come first. And I know if you grew up in the church, you were taught this from day one. But I also know that in our actual experiential reality of being the church, we often flip this thing upside down. All right, so this is, this is a touchy subject today. I'm ve- well aware of that, that I am poking a little bit at the way we do family in our world because I think we have sometimes elevated family value above the following of Jesus kind of value, all right? Jesus carries on, anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying don't love your children. He's not saying don't love your parents. He's saying make sure that the way you love your children and how you discern how to go about loving your children and what loving looks like has everything to do with having me first and foremost in your life. Let me give you um, one example. I have a a friend who who sensed a um, deep and powerful call to um, be on mission, to go in full-time ministry in, in another country, And because that, of course, carried with it um, a level of poverty, it carried with it a level of sacrifice, his family pushed him to say, you probably shouldn't do that. That's not responsible, right? And to me, this is a clear situation where someone had a a call from God to follow Jesus into a particular ministry and mission, but family wanted to trump that and say, but we we think you need to be, and again, I'm not going to, push back against any parent who says, make sure you're being responsible for your decisions. But Jesus' call on our lives trumps right? what family responsibility looks like. That's one example in my mind where this relative relationship um, needs to be paid attention to. And this is a Jesus refrain. The very next thing he says, he says this in a number of places in the Gospels, something like this anyways, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, whoever does not live in a sacrificial way for others is not worthy of me. And in this context, Jesus is saying, whoever's not willing to sacrifice some of the comforts of familial relationships, keeping the peace, so to speak, who's ever not willing to sacrifice that on occasion is going to miss out on all that I have to offer them. And then verse 39 there, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And I was just thinking, I, I've, I've read that so often, that's think, yeah, that's just normal talk. That's crazy talk. Because aren't most of us designed to try and find the best possible life that we can for ourselves? And here Jesus says, no, 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 you can't go finding your life. Well, what does he mean? What does he mean? I think he means this. If your objective is to bless yourself by having the best life that you can make for yourself, you're actually going to miss out on the true meaning of life. But if you're willing to sacrifice your own self-first kind of desires, if you're willing to put me first, says Jesus, if you're willing to put others first, if you're willing to put the kingdom first, then you're actually going to find it. He's trying to tell us, be on guard against those straight line approaches where what we do adds up to what the results that we get. Jesus' way is to say, you know that I went through death to get to life, right? You know that I came down into this world even though I'm God in order to be raised up into glory. You know that I laid down my life so that you could have life. He says it's that kind of upside-down thinking that you need to continue to pay attention to. And so again, in terms of family, it's not all about do we hang on to family values and do we have good family gatherings. It's does our family actually have a mission. Is our main purpose that we care for each other, or is our main purpose as a family that we find a way to reach in this world to sacrifice some of our preferences and benefits on behalf of those who are around us, on behalf of our neighbors? Whoever loses their life will find it. Whichever family loses its life will find it. That kind of challenge from Jesus. And then he applies his teaching. We're now jumping to chapter 12 because it seems to me that in this um, in this chapter, Jesus does what he had just been talking about in chapter 10. So while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. So think about this a minute. Say Pete Van came up here and it wasn't a tech issue for once that I had. He was coming up here and he whispers in my ear, Eric, your mom's on the phone. I, of course, would get up and leave and say... Sorry, folks, my mom's on the phone, right? No, of course not. One, my mom would never do this, so, Mom, I know you're probably going to watch this at some point. I know you wouldn't do that. But that's actually, it's just inappropriate, right? Mary, Jesus' mother, is being inappropriate here. She's asking Jesus to stop what he's clearly been called to do. She pondered that in her heart in the Luke 2 story of, of, of Jesus' birth, Right? She's asking him to stop that because they have this sense that family is going to trump the calling of God in Jesus' life. So I want to suggest to you that, again, we need to take care that being family and valuing our family does not trump the purpose of mission that we've been given by Jesus into this world. Jesus applies it in that way. And he says these words, Jesus says some really challenging things, right? I'm not sure I would ever say this. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then Jesus points to his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is giving us permission here to say to our family units, it's more important for me to be on God's mission, to be true to what I think he's calling me to do, than it is for me to keep the peace in my family setting. If my need to follow Jesus offends you, my brothers and sisters, my mother and my father, I'm gonna have to go with Jesus' mission in my life. Now, in this present time, It's probably not hard to find tension in family. Um, In my experience, most families have differing opinions about how things should be handled with respect to COVID and vaccines and so on. So we're all getting the real wonderful privilege of trying to figure out how do we negotiate and manage things and walk as family when we have those differences. Now, I'm definitely not gonna tell you that one side of this argument versus the other side, one's the kingdom of God and one's not the kingdom of God. Definitely not my place to do that. But it's an illustration of the fact that All of us are living in a world where those who are important people in our lives, our family members, right, and our church family members, see things a little bit differently than we do, and we need to figure out a way, how do we walk forward with that? How do we first recognize that Jesus kind of promised these tensions would be there, so don't be surprised that they're there. But at the same time, find a way to walk forward in those things and to return to the meaningful peace, right? Even if the sword shows up, it doesn't mean that we're meant to say, yep, yeah, Jesus promised that we we're going to struggle, so we're just going to sit in our struggle. No, Jesus promised that we are going to struggle, but he also gave us the tools and the calling to love God above all else and our neighbors, ourselves, and, of course, your neighbor does include your family members, absolutely for sure. All right? So I want to give you some practical principles on how to do this. First and foremost, in case it hasn't been clear yet, sword play is not a requirement. Fighting is not a requirement. You are not required to find tensions in your family. Sometimes we feel, uh, even along the lines of persecution, I I think sometimes churches are looking for ways to say, look, we're being persecuted by the government because we don't have all the freedoms that we want and so on. No, persecution will happen in spite of your best intentions not to see it, right? Um, You will feel tension in family relationships even if you work your hardest to keep peace, right? So you don't need to bring the mess to the family. You don't need to say, God promised we were going to have tension, so I'm going all in and I'm just going to say whatever I think when I get together with my family. No, 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 and no, right? Swordplay is not a requirement. You do not need to bring the lack of peace. Life will probably manage that all by itself, right? And then own the messy parts of your family. I think sometimes because we value family so highly in the church, and sometimes I think we actually value family higher in the church than the Bible does. Jesus, in case you didn't know, was a single man. He did not illustrate that the most important thing you need to do is be part of a marriage and a family and all that kind of thing. The Apostle Paul talks about this. We're going to look at that later in this series, right? He said it's actually probably better to be single because then you can be married to the kingdom and be first and foremost about God's work and then all of the other things will be secondary. He doesn't say you can't get married. He doesn't say don't love your family. doesn't say get out of your family. But he values that kingdom, married to the kingdom kind of relationship higher than anything else. That was an aside. Own the messy parts of your family. Because we value family so highly, I think we are sometimes afraid to be honest about the fact that being in a family can be messy and there are tensions and there are difficulties, right? How's your family? We're fine. That's our standard answer. Is there a place in your world where you can be honest about the fact that not everything is fine in your family? Right? Notice that I put these two things on the slide at the same time. Own the messy parts of your family at the same time. Notice that you love them anyways. I was reading a couple of things that were sent to me this week about dealing again with COVID differences and doing that in a family where you're going, I don't know where this person's coming from. They think so differently than I do. Right? That happens from both sides of the argument. But then recognizing, but I love them. They're my family. right? They're part of who I am even if you're frustrated with your parents or your children, you recognize they, maybe part of your frustration is they carry a lot of the same DNA and training and habits and styles and characteristics that I do, and maybe that's what's frustrating me there, right? So there's this dynamic interplay of our families are messy, but they're also beautiful and we love them. And it's probably important that we say that kind of stuff just simply out loud that we're able to say honestly, you know what, there's some, there's some messy parts to my family, there's some broken relationships, there's some people that I'm not getting along with the way I'm supposed to, but also recognizing, but I'm loving them and I'm hanging on to this and I'm gonna find a way, I'm gonna commit myself to moving forward. So when people come to me as their pastoral counselor, let's say, and they share with me stuff that's happened in their family, Almost inevitably, they will say, but they're not bad people. But they're not bad people. And I'm always struck, because so I'm thinking, you somehow assume that because something messy happened in your life, put up your hand, by the way, if nothing messy has ever happened in your family life, good for you to keep your hand. It's always easier if I let you keep your hands down, right? Everybody in the world, every family in the world has messy stuff. Our role as church family is not to come here and pretend that we don't have messy stuff, but to be the people who know, if and as I bring that stuff before God, that's where the healing starts to take place. I'm gonna be honest about it, I'm gonna own it, and own the fact that I love them, and that's the formula, that's the beginning, that's the foundation, right? The harder we hide it, the harder we try and push it down, you know we can all see it, right? When you're pretending that your family is just perfect, you're trying so hard to pretend that your family is perfect, leaks. Hate to break it to you. It leaks, and people can see that. We're way better off getting ahead of the curve and saying, you know, my name's Eric, and I come from a messy family. I came from a messy family, and I'm a parent of a messy family, right, on both of those levels. When we can own that part, it actually allows us to start dealing a little more honestly with the specifics of what's messy in those families. So, Number four, extra credit. So I call this extra credit because it sounds like it's a stretch. Jesus basically said it this way, didn't he? Unless you do this, you don't actually have a part of me. So extra credit for Pastor Eric in our world is actually baseline material for Jesus. Spend some time figuring out what your family stuff is that hampers you in following Jesus fully. All right? So when you, um, so we as a staff have been doing the book. I, I told you about it probably when I first got here almost a year ago. Um, it's called The Leader's Journey. I call it the stupid book. And I call it that because it's like it reads my soul and my mind, and it talks a lot about my family and says, you know, if you're in a family, then these kinds of things take place. And then you react this way, and that comes from your family. You need to deal with that stuff if you want to become a healthier, more whole person. Right? So the way, it basically comes down to this, the way to make your family dynamic more healthy is not to try harder to pretend that it is already healthy, but to actually go back and find that safe place where you can first say to yourself, these are some of the dynamics. You know what? I react really strongly to controlling people because my father was controlling, right? Or I react really Um, strongly to people who are are excessively nurturing because my mom was excessively nurturing and didn't allow me to stand up for myself. Whatever Whatever your story is, that shapes how you function in Christ's kingdom, right? And so when Jesus says to you, unless you love me more than your family, unless you're willing to let my truth trump some of the dysfunctional dynamics of your family truth, you're not gonna enter into the fullness of all that I have in store for you right? Let me put it this kind of blunt way. When I talk with people like Pastor Peter Cranenberg, who is an intern, when I talk with folks who are thinking about going into ministry, I always tell them, this job will push all of your buttons until you deal with that stuff. And then when I do weddings, I say this to to both members of the couple, marriage is perfectly designed in this way. This person God has given you is going to push all of your buttons until you deal with your stuff. That's why you argue at home, by the way. Because God has perfectly designed people around you to help you deal with your messy stuff honestly so that when you bring it before Christ, when you become honest about it, when you find healing, when you do the forgiveness track, when you do the confession track, when you have that healing track that God has given us, you can be a restored person who lives in a healthier relationship at home, in the church, and in your neighborhood because you'll have this sense of myself is the self that God created me to be and healed me to be in Jesus Christ. And it's that person that I put forward to allow me to follow Christ more fully. So this is a do you dare. Do you dare look at your life, your journey, I can give you material to help you do this if you want to, just ask and figure out what is the stuff that's hampering me from being the fullest, most healthy person in relationship in all my relationships in this world And are you willing to face that stuff down, to deal with it, to confess what needs confessing, to forgive where it needs to be forgiven, and to move forward in these relationships in a more and full way? Jesus did not call us to follow him so that someday we can get out of here and go to heaven. Jesus called us so that we can live right now by all the truth, justice, and love that he calls us to so that here in this world, we can be examples of what true and healthy and good relationships look like. Your calling from Jesus, is to step into that and follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sit before you as messy people who, and we scratch just a little bit beneath the surface, can recognize our own mess and brokenness, what we have done that's hurt and where we have been hurt by others. And Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would help us be daring and bold enough to trust your truth and to step out in faith and share first with ourselves and also with a meaningful and important other in our lives, the kind of things that we're working on that we need help with, where forgiveness needs to take place, where confession needs to happen. And Lord, we pray that as you help us boldly step into that reality, we may find the truth of healing and forgiveness and restoration, and that it may show in our relationships at home, in the church community, and all the relationships that we have in all of our life. All this we pray, Jesus, trusting you in your holy name. Amen.